the coming best practice, and it's really here today, but it's going to be a must-have if it isn't already, is data analytics. And if you don't have a good internal system, you're not going to be able to get good data analytics, which tell you how your program is actually doing today, not yesterday, and which point towards hotspots or areas of concern that you really need to address. Global companies face unprecedented risks and challenges in today's economy. To mitigate these legal and economic risks, companies are rapidly embracing and elevating the importance of robust ethics and compliance programs to promote positive corporate citizenship. On Corruption, Crime and Compliance, you'll hear from industry leaders and insiders about how to create effective ethics and compliance programs that will mitigate risks and maximize financial performance. Here's your host, Michael Volkov. Well, hello, everyone. Really happy to welcome my compliance colleague, Susan Divers from LRN, for what I consider one of my favorite episodes, to be honest with you. Always great to see you, Susan, but thank you for joining us today. And this is your second time on the podcast, and we've had your colleague, Ty Francis, on as well. But it's great to see you. Oh, thanks, Mike. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. And here we're Every year I wait for this, the program effectiveness report that comes out. And this year I thought, Susan, it was a really interesting report, and I wanted to dive into it with you. But if you could sort of give us a little bit of background on it and just to sing LRN's praises again, if you're not following LRN and not following all the work that comes out from them, you are missing the best source and most accurate and reliable source for ethics and compliance programs. So I urge my uh, listeners, please get on the LRN bandwagon. You probably already are. But Susan, thank you so much again. And go ahead and sort of fill us in on this year's study and walk us through it some. Sure. Absolutely, Mike. And thanks for having us on the podcast. And back at you, you've done a tremendous job in terms of democratizing compliance and showcasing best practices and bringing to bear your insights. So we really appreciate that because we're all on the same side in the end. So as you probably know, but for people who are unfamiliar with the annual program effectiveness report, we do a survey of ethics and compliance professionals globally. This year we had 1,860 respondents, which is pretty robust. And they were pretty evenly spread throughout the world. And they're all ethics and compliance professionals. And all of the companies are larger than 5,000 employees. We take a look at what the differences are between the responses that score highly on our program effectiveness index and those that score a bit lower. And that's always a really enlightening thing to look at. So I'd be happy to talk about some of the differences between high-performing programs and those that are less effective. But it's also a really good way to take a look at what's happening in the ethics and compliance space. And that's actually a very good news story. And I wanted to set you up a little bit with that, Susan, because we have been through 
particularly last year, the Russia sanctions and the disruptions that that caused. And then the year before, the two years before, we've been recovering from the pandemic. And there's just one finding that you all made with regard to the strength of ethical cultures. And if you could sort of highlight that, I am just fascinated by this because it was a difficult time for everyone. Yeah. And I'm glad you called that out, Mike. This is the third year we've seen that. So it's not a fluke. We started asking this question right when the pandemic hit. And the question is, has your ethical culture strengthened as a result of the challenges in the last year? But for the last three years, we've gotten overall responses in the 80s. And this year, it was 82% said, yes, our ENC program, our ethical culture, sorry, has strengthened as a result of our experience in the pandemic. And then we've also asked questions about whether ENC programs played a key role in meeting the challenges, and the answers were overwhelmingly positive, and whether leadership embraced company values and purpose in meeting the challenges. So it's a very encouraging picture. There was some fear at the beginning of the pandemic that ENC programs would fade into the background as right. kind of unnecessary barriers, but that isn't what happened. I also want to point out what you're referring to here is that values-based leadership and programs performed differently or more effectively, I think, from your perspective, from LRN's perspective, than what are called, let's say, rules-based compliance programs. And that, to me, just means values, values and culture, values is just critical in meeting challenges like you're talking about. Well, that's very meaningful coming from you, too, because you're a lawyer. I'm sorry for that, Susan. I can't. In recovery, what can I say? Yeah. But there's a very stark example of that that comes out of the pandemic. And about two years ago in our program effectiveness report, we did some anecdotes and we included one from Braskin USA, which is an energy company. And Braskin's employees volunteered to self-isolate for up to 30 days at a time in the plant to keep the grid going. And management fully supported them, did everything they could to make it happen. But the employees volunteered. It was their idea. And you look at that and you say there's no rule that could have forced people to do that. It was values. And then you look at what happened at Foxconn, which is... Apple's main supplier in mainland China, where they had employees locked in the plant fairly recently <laughs> last year, crying and trying to escape and in super distress because they were being forced to lock down into the plant to keep production going. And I think you can't come up with a more stark example of values-based compliance versus rules-based compliance than that. Very interesting. Yep. That's fantastic. So going back, I mean, obviously, you know, I called this past year the year of the trade compliance officer. And I think they were the person of the year, given the challenges that they had with the Russia sanctions. There's never been a program like that rolled out or implemented, almost changing on a daily basis for the first few months. 
that made a challenge, and it also exposed, I thought, weaknesses in your distribution or, more importantly, your supply chain. When I found out there were companies or clients that were 80% dependent upon Russian supplies. And that exposed, I think, a lot of issues for people. But trade compliance, it seemed like there was some issues you got into here on the trade compliance front. We did. And they're of concern. Just to reinforce what you just said, Lisa Monaco, the Deputy Attorney General, said in September that one way to think about trade compliance is as today's FCPA, which that will be a very meaningful statement to you and to me because we grew up as lawyers in the FCPA compliance area. And it is an area that is just fraught with tremendous risk. And it's Russia, of course, and people don't even realize what they've got in their supply chain or their customer base. In a lot of instances, it could be Russian-controlled entities but you've also got ramped up controls on China on the technology side and ramped up sanctions on Iran as well. So it is definitely the year of the trade compliance officer. But one of the concerning things we saw in the data, and it's in the report, is we did not see a lot of proactive attention being paid to trade controls and compliance improvements or training. If it was fairly far down on the list, that's not a good thing from a risk point of view in the compliance area. And I get that. You know, I just saw, from my client perspective, I saw people just surviving, sort of just struggling to survive and stay in front of it. And just even to figure out what was applying from the EU, from Japan, from Australia, from Canada, all around the world, and it made it really, really difficult. What about in terms of the positive accomplishments we've talked, you know, in terms of the 85% or so showing that your cultures or reporting their cultures were stronger, what were some of the issues, some of the difficulties that you, your report identified as well or challenges? Well, we asked an interesting question that I don't think we asked last year. And it was, what is the biggest obstacle to improving the effectiveness of your ethics and compliance program? And the number one obstacle worldwide was lack of good internal systems, whether it's LMS, platform, websites. And I'd be interested whether you've seen this in your practice, but sometimes when we work with our clients, we really see that the internal systems haven't kept pace with what they really need to do to meet and mitigate the risks in today's world. That I definitely find really interesting. I know exactly what you're talking about here in terms of, for example, like a global company not being able to, let's say, wanting to push out global messaging ethical issues or values. And the difficulty they face in just sending out a simple message because they don't have a global internal system for communication purposes, let's say. And is that something that you see as well, Susan? And how do we get at that issue? How do we try to dig into this issue? We absolutely see it, Mike. We see it even in Fortune 10s as well as Fortune 100s and Fortune 500s. And I think that the way you get at it is to draw an analogy with information security where if you don't have a good firewall, then you're practically negligent 
in terms of the way you're running the company. And that's really a board issue too. Has the company designed its internal systems to really meet the challenges that it needs to meet in terms of business? So I would argue that boards ought to look at that issue. And there's another reason for it as well, not just that it really hampers what people can do with communication and training and certifications and even audit in a lot of instances. But as you know, the coming best practice, and it's really here today, but it's going to be a must-have if it isn't already, is data analytics. And if you don't have a good internal system, you're not going to be able to get good data analytics, which tell you how your program's actually doing today, not yesterday, and which point towards hotspots or areas of concern that you really need to address. So I think that's really an important area and people absolutely need to focus on it and make the investment. That's the big issue is making the investment because it means that you may have to spend a lot of money to update your technology and bring the organization closer together in that sense and also enable the collection of data and metrics and use that to assess ongoing activities, not just compliance. For business purposes, your financial controls, whatever it is, your systems have to work. And and the expectation that I see from the regulators, particularly the SEC, and even to a certain extent DOJ, in terms of some of their enforcement actions, is that companies are investing in this and should be. And I think you call out a really big issue, which is you almost have to take a fresh look. You can't do it one thing at a time, like say, okay, we're going to do cybersecurity and not look at your communication system, your financial controls, your overall organization, and your internal systems. That's a very interesting finding. And I think that's a warning shot to everybody right now. I would agree. And as you know, LRN is the leading training company in the world today. We've just substantially upgraded our platform so that it does a tremendous amount in terms of providing real-time insights into what courses are people struggling with, what subtopics are people mm-hmm. struggling with, what areas of the world are struggling, or what segments of the business. And now I couldn't imagine running an ethics and compliance program without that type of insight because that's much more meaningful than going in once a quarter and reporting to the board that you just trained, I don't know, 3,000 people. Uh, Right. You don't know how effective that was or how relevant it was. But if you have analytics out of something like your LMS or your platform, and ours is very powerful and does a lot, then you can also scale your team much more effectively. So in the end, it pays great dividends, but I think you're right to call it out is a warning shot for companies that they really need to look hard at that area. Well, you raise another interesting issue, which is training, and and immediately make the good point that, you know, it can't be just a rote once a quarter, go through this thing and then fill out the multiple choice thing at the end. It seems to me like there seems to be greater focus out of necessity, given the multiplying risks and the importance of values and embedding in training. Do you see that? And is there some sort of correspondent 
or you know relationship with training and these types of cultures that you see? Absolutely, Mike. And you know it's an area that has gotten a lot better. When I first started, bus training was long lectures, you know, forty-five minutes. I bunch of lawyers who are going to bore the tears out of people. Yeah, the point seemed to be to sort of overwhelm you with data rather than train you. And now best practice, which is in our program effectiveness report this year and others, is, you know, to have shorter modules that you can take one, go back, take another. You can go back if you need a refresher on gifts and entertainment. In five minutes, you can get that. To have used videos, that's not new, but to use also technology that allows you to tailor training to a person's right. role. So when you log on, are you a manager? Are you an employee? You get different substance as a result. And then something that I personally think is very powerful is test out, where you invite right. employees to test out. And if they do, great. They can take a more sophisticated refresher. If they don't, you can bet they're going to pay a lot of attention to that course when they take it again. And the, the emphasis that uh, DOJ has placed on scenarios, but I think the industry was already moving into that area already, and DOJ is sort of catching up. But the scenarios-based training to me seems really effective as well, and I'm sure LRN works with clients to tailor it to the relevant scenarios that could come up for each client. Well, we actually encourage that, and we have a course customizer that is so easy to use that's like editing a Word document. So if you've just had a compliance meltdown, you can include some sanitized references to that in what you're rolling out going forward. And I wish I had had that when I was running my compliance program. Yeah, I agree. That's something. I wanted to go to, and I hate to be, because these are positive messages, but I hate to go back to something a little bit more negative, which has been of concern to me, and I constantly hear about budget constraints, staff shortages that are just hampering and hindering the mission of ethics and compliance professionals such that they have to prioritize their tasks. And I noted some findings that you've had in this area. Can you talk about those and what you think the significance is and how do we address this problem? Well, and I'm glad you raised that. We do see that in the responses to what are the obstacles to improving your effectiveness. And I'd say that rather than just talk about the general problems of sort of clawing a budget out, I think it's helpful to think about the role of the board. And the board really needs to ensure that there are good systems in place in the company. They don't have to manage the company per se but they have to make sure that the systems are effective. What you're really talking about with ethics and compliance is a system. It may have you know, lots of different facets, but it's a system with processes. So I think that's a board issue in a lot of ways. But I also think that if you can make the investment in a good platform, you can scale your efforts much more effectively. I can't tell you how many times I've worked with our clients and found that they were dealing with annual conflict of interest disclosures manually. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that just eats up time and it's frustrating and it's not efficient. And there's really no need to do that anymore. I mean, we have automated platforms now 
for third-party risk, policy management, conflict of interest, training like you were just talking about, such that people, to the extent we're doing manual tasks, really need to bring that to senior management, but more importantly, the board's attention. I would agree. And that raises another interesting thing, which I think is going to start to really influence ethics and compliance. In the report, we talk about the emphasis on personal liability that this Department of Justice has put forward. They've named it their number one priority, which right. is personal responsibility for misconduct. There's a lot of activity in the clawback space, too, when compliance failures happen, that executives are going to have a bite on their compensation. So I think as that starts to sink in, it's time for the business leaders in companies to think about this the same way they think about good financial reporting systems. Like their socks. You always hear about socks. And now we need that same mentality in ethics and compliance. This we absolutely do. We absolutely do. The time has come. And, you know, the positive side is you get data metrics out of it. But the negative side is if you don't have it, DOJ in particular, I think, is and SEC have both gotten very sophisticated in this area. No question. And we've seen DOJ investing in, you know, they hired forgot the gentleman's name from InBev. Matt Galvin. Yeah. yeah, Matt Galvin. And they have an in-house data capability now that means that they will know what your organization's ability is to implement such a system because they've done it themselves. So you raise another good point, and I want to emphasize that, which is, first off, we had a Delaware court decision which extended the Caremark obligations to senior management. So that's right in keeping with what you just said. DOJ obviously is pointing towards individuals, and now they're requiring a compliance compensation system, and that we now have to look at clawbacks or other deferred compensation programs. But what's really interesting to me in that is they define the wrongdoer to be, or somebody who should be subject to this, not just the person who committed the wrongdoing, but who failed to conduct oversight and monitoring of that and that they should be then subjected to the clawback. And we have the first case, the Dance Bank case, which happened last year, anti-money laundering, and they included a provision in the deferred prosecution agreement to accomplish this. And you have hit the nail right on the head, Susan. When we speak to the board now and senior management, there's more at stake here now for that. You agreed, Mike. Yeah. And you were referring, I think, to the McDonald's decision involving yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, fail utterly and completely and disastrously to deal with sexual harassment in the company. And what I hear that decision saying is if you're standing on the deck and you see an iceberg and you don't right. clear it out, then you're personally liable. That is going to have an impact proactive compliance officers can start to have that conversation so that their senior management and their boards are, are prepared for what's coming. I mean, not to call out LRN for more work, but I actually believe that LRN, if I were sitting as a chief compliance officer, I would take the LRN report, I would take the current events out of DOJ and the Delaware court and present it 
and put it right there with the board and say, here's what's going on. Here's what we need to look at. And honestly, boards I've found need to be educated on what they have to do. They don't know how to do to monitor a compliance program and make sure it's got the resources and is working well. But I would take that LRN report and I call it a board-worthy type of report. Every board member needs to read that. Well, I appreciate the vote of confidence, Mike, and I think I'm going to take you up on that (laughs) pretty carefully. And it's really fascinating what's going on. And boards do need to know about it. And I don't think senior management knows about it really yet. I agree with you. And these things have all sort of come about quickly in the last three to six months. We've seen this trend. You hit the nail on the head that we need to really bring about a new kind of thinking about this. And you've raised the internal systems, data collection, and data analysis. And I noted in your report, there was something about that people are collecting data, but they're not expanding or tailoring it to what their risks are, what they're trying to monitor as well. Am I paraphrasing it correctly? I may have said it not correctly, but in terms of data collection. There's still, you know, a lot of activity in terms of pulling data from other sources in the company and having many strands. But until you analyze that in an organized way, then you might have information, but you don't have knowledge or you don't have insight. And some of the leaders in this area, companies I've seen over the past couple of years, have really made an effort to take data strands from as many places in the company as possible and correlate them. So, for example, if you roll out new conflict of interest training and you see an uptick in conflict of interest disclosures, well, that's an indication that the training is effective. And that's much more meaningful. And just counting activities and numbers. I agree. Kind of minor example, but you're right. No, that's an important example. That's an important example, Susan. That's exactly what DOJ wants to see. Also, from your standpoint, that's what would be effective for a company. To yeah, and that's real evidence of effectiveness. Well, Susan, thank you so much. This has been, as always, you know, I could go on for two hours with you just to continue the conversation, but If people, if our listeners want to get in touch with you to talk about LRN, talk about your training, talk about all the other work that you do and support you provide to hopefully to educate a few boards here and there and senior management teams and work with companies on their compliance programs, how do they get in touch with you? Oh, it's easy, Mike. It's susan.divers at lrn.com and always happy to help anyone who has a question. And it's such a pleasure to chat with you always. Yeah, well, thank you. It's always a pleasure. I look forward to all the work that you all put out. I read it immediately, and it's just terrific. So keep up the great work. We'll have you back for another report sometime and just to catch up and see where we are at that point as well. So thank you again, Susan. Thanks, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to support the show is by subscribing on your favorite listening platform. To learn more and connect with Michael Volkov, go to volkovlaw.com. 